This episode of Managing Minds touches on issues around mental health. If it raises anything for you, there's always somewhere to turn, like beyondblue.org.au or you can call Lifeline on 131114. It is a syndrome of exhaustion combined with cynicism, distancing, some kind of disconnect of people with their work environment. You might not think of burnout as something that's related to mental health. Maybe you think it's being overworked or stressed. While it's not a clinically diagnosable disorder, burnout does have a huge impact on both our mental and physical health. It's also closely connected to the culture of your workplace. My name is Anna McAfee, and in this episode of Managing Minds, we're going to talk about burnout. What causes it, what the symptoms are, and most importantly, what you can do to reduce the chances of it happening to the people around you. Because chances are, it is happening to the people around you. According to a global study by work management app Asana, four in five Australian white collar workers said they experienced symptoms of burnout in 2020. And more than half of 10,000 Australian healthcare workers who took part in a Royal Melbourne Hospital survey said they were experiencing burnout. It was a massive jump because of the impacts of COVID and working from home. But what it does highlight is the need to get better at supporting our teams and ourselves in tough times. The, the core of the burnout issue is that I actually care about what I'm doing or where I am. And there's something in here that's refusing to move into a better space. Neville Starrick suffered from burnout just a couple of years after becoming a teacher. With his already high workload being increased further, Neville was also finding it harder and harder to get his concerns heard by the people above him. I came back into the, the following year, the start of the new school year, and I was angry. And I was just constantly angry, and I just could not stop being angry. Uh, it, it finally got to the point where I realized that things were going really wrong when I got sick. And I, I had managed to get through the first year without getting sick at all, but I got the flu and actually had to take time off work for a few days. And it was the first time that I had actually sat at home without a pile of work. And I realized that this is not sustainable. This anger Neville talks about is a common symptom of burnout. And because we can't necessarily express it to our managers we can find ourselves becoming angry at our clients or other members of our team. Or maybe we direct it at the people we're managing. So understandably, the flow-on effect of this can have a huge impact on a business. I asked Neville what signs managers can look out for in a workplace when it comes to burnout. If you find somebody's stopping caring about their work or caring about something that's been really, really important to them, with the quality that they produce or with the amount of work that they produce, uncharacteristic withdrawal or disengagement from the, the work and or the social context could be a sign that burnout is looming. People just don't have the energy to be social. If you're noticing people feeling constantly overwhelmed um, and unable to prioritize what they need to do, that could be an indicator too. 
Okay, so burnout presents as a dip in energy, a dip in productivity, and a dip in motivation. But what causes it? Michael Leiter is a professor of organizational psychology and an author who specializes in burnout. Burnout to me is primarily like it's a relationship breakdown. It's not a, uh, you know, something wrong with the person or isn't necessarily that the workplace is impossible. It is a syndrome of exhaustion combined with cynicism, distancing, some kind of disconnect of people with their work environment and losing sort of confidence in your capacity to do great work and to accomplish great things at work. What do you think is the most common misconception around burnout? I think the most common misconception is there's sort of a pair of them. One is that it's just exhaustion uh, rather than this more complicated thing. And secondly, that all you need to do is just get your life together and, and, and you'll prevent burnout. It's just a matter of eating well and organizing your time. From trawling through years of research, Professor Leiter and his colleagues identified six areas of work life that can have a big impact when it comes to burnout. The first one, and you know, we really can't ignore the idea of just work demands. Uh, too much work, not enough time, not enough resources, not enough help. That was a big reason for the jump in burnout during COVID. The Centre for Future of Work released a report that showed, ready for this? We as a country accumulated $98 billion worth of overtime during 2020. That is around seven weeks of unpaid work each because of that blurring of work, home time. The second trigger for burnout is control. Capacity to make decisions, to really determine how you're going to work. And going along with that is some sense of autonomy in terms of having that experience that you can make things happen. This is a big one. How can we as managers give our team more control of the work they do and give them a sense of autonomy? And maybe at the same time, free up a bit of time for ourselves. The third one is reward. And particularly looking at intrinsic rewards, do you really enjoy doing this? Are you able to do the fun parts of your job? But also financial reward. And particularly when you look at that relative to other people like pay inequities. The fourth one is community. The idea that you want to be part of a group of people and you want to be a valued part of that group of people, not just someone they're putting up with. Having a sense of community is important in all aspects of our lives. And this is especially so at work. Think about what effect bullying and harassment had. Or how does being in an industry with lots of casuals who don't know each other affect the sense of community? The fifth risk area is fairness. So are you treated fairly? Are your customers, uh, your clients, your, your patients, students, are they being treated fairly? And then the sixth one that in a way integrates all the rest of them is the idea of values. Uh, my values and the organization's values are alike. And can you strongly agree with that? Or, or are you very flat about it? Or you actually disagree with that statement? Like all mental health, everyone's experience of burnout is different. Often physical illness combines with mental symptoms and how that manifests can vary. 
Burnout for me um, was a very interesting experience. Sky Rommeld was working in her dream job as a manager in an advertising company in New York, but the culture of overwork had a confronting impact on her mental health. When I was diagnosed by my doctor to have burnout, severe anxiety, major depression and PTSD, all from my workplace, I laughed at them and basically said, no, like I'm, I'm okay and I'm fine. And I think that's the most frightening component of mental health compared to physical health. You know, obviously if I fell over and broke my leg, I'd know to go straight to a hospital and get a cast on it and walk around on crutches. But sadly, you know, you can be highly performing and highly functioning um, with mental health issues and you don't even recognise like what strain you're putting your body through or how sick you are. I've had my own experience with periods of burnout and I was lacking emotional feeling. Things that would happen in my life that I would think, that is really upsetting. But I would suddenly just get up and go and do something else. And it was only when I really had to pull back and I realised that I should have had much more emotion about what was going on, but I just had no sense of feeling. I actually got put on sick leave for a week where they took away my phone and my laptop (laughs) and I didn't know what to do with myself. I remember waking up and just thinking, what do I do today? What makes me happy? Which is the weirdest thing to think now because I love food, I love culture, I love art, I love exercise. So many things now I could riddle off. I was so emotionally drained and numb that once you remove that one thing that I thought my whole life was about, I didn't know what else to do. The pressure that you felt to be online all the time, was that something that they drove to their employees or was that something that you felt a need to do yourself? I had quite a toxic boss and she very much set this sort of precedent that everyone was on 24-7. So even as a middle manager, when I tried to manage my team to not be like that, you know, I encouraged them to leave the office at six o'clock. I told them to go to their boxing class or to go see their boyfriend that they haven't seen in months. For me personally, having those boundaries is so important. And it was particularly important for me to, as a manager, to set that tone. Nothing got dropped. Nothing went wrong. Essentially, we still had healthy, happy clients and then healthy, happy staff Um, but unfortunately my senior boss then kind of overwrote that tone that I'd set um, and set the precedent that we did have to have our phones dinging all time. An organisation that prides itself in overwork and high turnover dramatically increases the risk of burnout and that's one of the reasons for the increase in burnout during COVID. In that study by Asana workers reported a massive increase in overtime from 236 hours in 2019 to 436 hours in 2020. Despite that increase in hours, people said they were missing a quarter of their deadlines. Managing all of the elements that cause burnout can seem overwhelming. But it's worth keeping in mind that there are some work environments where having employees get burnt out is simply not an option. 
Professor Kimberly Norris is a psychological scientist and clinical psychologist who's worked with the Australian Antarctic Division since 2005. I asked her what an extreme work environment like Antarctica can teach us about overwork and burnout. Most routine work environments, people go to work, do what's required of them, finish work and exit the environment. They, they get to mentally switch off, they get to physically disengage from that space. In Antarctica, however, you live, work, socialise, sleep, rest, play, exercise, everything happens with the same group of people and in a really confined space. So it's the challenges of a routine work environment dialed up in volume because of the constant interaction. And if we think in the current context, for example, uh, where the return to Australia has been delayed by up to around five months, this means being in a highly challenging, high leadership, high stakes environment for nearly another half a year to what you were originally expecting. These challenges are massive for all the people working in Antarctica, but it's up to the leaders to support the team through these times so that they have very specific training to minimise the chances of burnout. So as you can appreciate, you know, in the middle of winter, at the very most, you've got 20 odd people on station. And as a leader, you need to be able to be available to all of those individuals, regardless of the level of friendship you might have with them. You actually need to manage work performance issues. When leaders are managing work performance issues in Antarctica, it's very rarely to do with underperformance. Overwork can come from both having a lot of external pressures, so having a lot of demands placed on you by others or by the organisation, but it can also come from within. So particularly when we're in an environment where maybe we're feeling that um, our job might be at risk, we're feeling a bit vulnerable, we're unsure about expectations, or perhaps we, we have some perfectionistic tendencies, we're going to see people engage in much higher workload levels to try and manage their own responses, reactions, thoughts about the work environment. So the expectations and example you set as a manager have a direct effect on the rate of burnout in your organisation. But not all leaders are pushing their staff by choice. For example, COVID has had drastic impacts on a range of workplaces. It's not always possible to tell your staff to work less because in areas like health, the need is overwhelming. I was interested to find out how leaders in these workplaces under extreme pressure can avoid team burnout if they can't tell their staff to work less. When you're in a like a crisis situation, a really peak demand situation, it is a matter of uh, the work really does need to be done. The difficulty uh, in this past year is that this becomes more like uh, running a marathon and becoming the model. There's an approach to running marathons where you actually switch back and forth between running and walking and find that that can be, for many people, they get better times 
doing that back and forth between running and walking than they do by trying to run the entire way because they are able to gather more energy, to, to bring together more energy when they're just sort of backing off for a little bit. So I think that kind of, uh, during the workday, trying to find ways that it's the group can work together to be able to trade off with each other in a more constructive kind of way. When the work doesn't stop, when the needs don't end, it's easy to find you take no breaks, you just keep sprinting. But there can be ways to find this run-walk method if people talk about it and make sure there's no resentment of a team member when they do just walk for a bit. On the other hand, you know, what can the workplace do to assure that people can rest more thoroughly when they're not at work, when they're at home? Or can they help people with transportation to and fro? Uh, when this past year, when uh, all of a sudden they're not only working at home, but they're also do uh, families are doing childcare and, um, and, and homeschooling at the same time. Uh, is there anything that the workplace can do to help with that? Working on the end of how do we help people really sustain and replenish their energy can be an important piece of the puzzle while still meeting the extraordinary demand. What this comes down to really is finding practical ways to show you care about your team, about the people around you. Making sure people are valued, that their work is rewarded and recognised, and that there is a sense of purpose and fulfilment in what they do. So if we can reconceptualize and reorient our workspaces to better align with those values. Not only are we going to protect people better against burnout, but we're actually going to enhance their overall performance and well-being, commitment to the organization, trust. Basically everybody wins when those environments can be constructed. Managing all of the elements that lead to burnout can seem daunting, but connecting with the people you manage and understanding how they are experiencing their work is a good place to start. Not all elements of burnout are under your control, but as a manager, you can set boundaries with your team and reduce the pressure on everyone. Creating trust within your team and an environment of mutual respect will build a workplace where people are more likely to come forward sooner. You can find extra links to resources and other information on our website, managingmindspodcast.com.au and also on our LinkedIn page. Up next on Managing Minds is our final episode and we look at returning to work, what you can do to make the transition back to work a positive experience and what happens when it's not. Understanding how we bring people back with emotional or psychological circumstances should be treated in a similar way as those with a physical uh, limitation would be, and that is about finding the right role in the right place. So I think our challenge is, is to actually be able to accommodate nuance and difference. Managing Minds is a headline productions podcast made in partnership with the State Insurance Regulatory Authority. Our host is Anna McAfee. This series has been produced and edited by Simon Portis. Fact-checking is done by Dr. James Donnelly, and the executive producer is me, Liz Keane.